bonus episode of Decoding Fox News, and I'm your host, Julia Chesky. Each week, I watch and analyze 15 hours of Fox News and then break it down. I watch all the Fox News you'd never want to. This project is made possible by the Townite Center for News Integrity at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. I'm a graduate of that program, not a student, and if you don't know me, I have a long history covering and researching the far right, specifically a hate group known as the Proud Boys. Now, I have today, this is the big excitement. I actually interviewed him way back uh, near Halloween, but because this project is just all-consuming and very difficult to keep up with the pace of it, I kept putting it off, and now I thought, hey, it's Christmas, perfect time to whip out the Andy Campbell interview, so you can all run out and buy his book. And his book is called We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Now, I've known Andy since about 2017, I think. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I was referred to him from Amanda Marcotte, um, and she's amazing. If you don't follow her, you should follow her. She's was one of the first to see all the red flags for the Proud Boys and to know that they were a serious, serious problem. Um, anyway, so what? I, just briefly before I get into this interview, which I've been listening to all night, uh, my relationship with Andy Campbell is is pretty intense. Uh, what happened when? There was a, I don't want to get into my whole backstory because it will just take up too much time and focus. And I, do, I just don't want to do that. But this interview is going to be a little unusual in that Andy and I know each other very, very well. And we know this group very, very well. So it's a little inside baseball. Uh, so I'll try to break it up so I'll explain some of the inside baseball as we go. But one of the things is at the time, there was a time in my journey with this group. Now, I was an anonymous researcher. I was not getting paid. I was not doing this for any sort of means to an end. I just really hated this group and I was scared that they would physically harm someone. So I just, I don't want to waste too much time on myself. I just want to briefly say that there was, I went through a lot doing this. And again, not paid, no credit, didn't want credit, didn't want attention. And I will add, by the way, and Andy talks about this in his book a little bit. There's a whole slew of researchers out there who do this work anonymously who do not want credit, who do not want anything from it. They just hate fascism. They hate white supremacy. They hate violent groups, the whole nine yards. And a lot of us are women, not all, but it's more than you'd expect. Uh, and again, no fame, no money, no credit. They just really want to work for the cause. And that's kind of where I was. And uh, I, I don't want to waste too much time, so I'm just not going to get into it. But there was a point in my life with this group where I had very good reason to believe that I would be physically harmed by someone in the Proud Boys. And I had been threatened and I had been like targeted, I'll say. And I was scared out of my mind. And that same weekend, a crazed person went into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and, and killed a bunch of Jewish people because they were Jewish. So I, that's when I had a breakdown and was like, I'm going to be a journalist. I, I have to do something with my life. I have to turn this into something. I can't, this is not this weird little hobby of mine to go after fascism. And I just decided that's it. I'm, I'm changing course forever. And during that time I, that I was terrified for my life, and I'll tell that other story later, it's just going to take too much time right now. 
Andy was the one journalist who kept checking in on me. And uh, that meant a lot. And so I teased him the last time I saw him that we're related, whether he likes it or not. So <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about Andy Campbell. So this is a very strong bond here. And uh, I just want to say very briefly, too, this might seem like kind of an odd interview because both Andy and I know each other very well. We know this group very well. So I'm going to try to cut this up when anything seems a little too inside baseball, whereas it is two people talking about a topic that know it so well that they don't realize that other people outside of the topic may not know what they're talking about. That's what inside baseball kind of means. So um, here we go. I'm going to just start it and we'll go through it as it goes. It, I just can't say enough good things about this book. You will fly through it. I read it in, and I did read the entire thing in three days. So here you go. So basically, the first question, I already know the answer to this, but my listeners and readers don't, because this is mm-hmm. going to be both a newsletter and a podcast, right. um, is how did you get in, how did you go from just regular journalist to extremism? Yeah, well, I was a crime reporter uh, for HuffPost. I've been there for almost 11 years now. And so I was, you know, covering mostly mass shootings. Basically, I'd show up to your community on its worst day. And, you know, between 2012 and, and 2016, it was it was mostly mass shootings. I, I'm sure you remember that was a terrible time for mass shootings. Um, but but I moved into extremism during the rise of Trump because we were seeing increasing acts of violence at MAGA rallies and starring these really wacky groups and figures, you know, dressed in makeshift body armor, uh, makeshift weaponry. And the, the Proud Boys stuck out as, uh, as more concerning than the other guys because they wanted to be lionized for their violence. They wanted to talk to the press. They didn't hide behind anonymity. And so, you know, we were we were very concerned um, that this was going to be a group that rose above the others. And, and that's turned out to be a good bet because here we are and the Proud Boys have been in orbit of every act of, you know, domestic terrorist violence uh, since Trump took office. I just want to explain this next question I'm about to ask Andy to give you a little bit of context. Journalists who work and cover in extremism face a lot of pushback from editors kind of all the time because the attitude is we don't want to amplify these voices and so you have to be very careful about when you report on extremism and it's a delicate balance. What was the first article that you wrote about the Proud Boys and did you get any blowback for that? That is a good question. I'm not sure exactly what the first uh, article we wrote but um, certainly the first a um, couple of events we covered in starring the Proud Boys. Uh, they were in Portland, Oregon, and that became a huge battleground. Um, but they were joined by uh, a number of, of other extremist groups like Patriot Prayer. And peculiar to us, they were also joined by everyday conservatives. I spoke to a woman at, in Portland, Oregon, uh, standing next to a uh, neo-Nazi and she, he was wearing, um, you know, different garb. He didn't have swastikas on him. He had sort of internet memes uh, that he was draped in. But wow. I asked her if she knew she was standing next to a Nazi. And she said, no, I don't know uh, who those guys are, but I'm just happy to be here uh, with other conservatives. So in the early days, it was just us trying to suss out 
you know, who all of these groups were, what their deal was. And, and, you know, the Proud Boys immediately, uh, you know, were excited about talking to us. They weren't giving us too much blowback because they wanted to push their ideology out there. That is, that is very true. I think it's one of the things that I personally found, like, you kind of have to have gallows humor if you're on this beat. And one of the things that I, I mean, I was laughing all the time when I would talk about it um, in grad school, but the one thing that I found very humorous was how uh, Enrique Tario in the January 6th committee hearing evidence is turning right to a camera of a documentarian going, well, this is what I'm planning. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because Gavin McGinnis is certainly like that. A lot of the Proud Boys are like that where, you know, they want the cameras on them. They want to be seen as this patriotic force and they want to joke around and seem less serious than they are. Uh, but but what's interesting and, you know, you can relate to this because you provided so much video research to this book uh, that ends up biting them in the ass because <laughs> these guys are saying everything that they say publicly and recorded um so you know if and when the proud boys come after me legally for my book i mean i have 350 citations and you have provided <laughs> hundreds of hours of video so there's just no inaccuracies here and and thank you know thank god they recorded all that stuff so again to give a little bit of context of what andy was just referring to there i have collected um all 407 episodes of the Gavin McInnes show. And that's, they're all captured, which you have to do that in real time. You can't download them and then go through them and watch them and cut them up and turn them into clips. And that was 407 episodes. Average show is about an hour and 40 minutes. Some were longer, some were shorter. So when people say, well, how can you watch so much Fox news? There you go, ladies and gentlemen, because the Gavin McInnes show was much worse than Fox news. Well, I, I found this is just a, kind of a tangent but it is funny when i was uh researching other people that would sort of like they would appear on gavin mcginnis's show and then i would follow them down a rabbit hole i try to find them or whatever i'd find like b-roll stuff stuff that wasn't on his show um like oddball stuff on youtube what i found was so amazing about a camera is it turns into a confessional for so many people and then they'll literally say stuff like I probably shouldn't say this on camera and then look right. around as if someone's and then whisper <laughs> it. And I'm like, right. you well, just said it into a camera. Yeah, this big broadcast. Gavin McGinnis <laughs> literally describes them as a gang. As you know, he on camera, he described them uh, as having white supremacist tenets on camera. He said all this racist stuff. Uh, and, you know, Enrique Tario caught on camera in Portland saying, we're going to come back to Portland every day to, fight people and waste the city's money all of these things they threaten to sue you for when you print them but it's like dude you said it right right to the camera yeah you said it you said you said it right to the camera it yeah. was like the joke that i've i started laughing about it when i did an interview with jared holt about um when gavin was would say don't worry we're behind a payroll paywall don't worry we're behind a paywall and i would laugh and i'd go so you really think like nine dollars is like it was nine dollars a month for anybody who doesn't know what a paywall is it's you have to pay nine dollars a month as a subscription to watch at the time the gavin mcginnis show and gavin mcginnis was just so 
delusional that he thought that that nine dollars was some sort of like magically keeping the press or researchers or Antifa or anybody away from his show. And so we would encourage his guests to get even worse and say even crazier uh -huh. stuff. And I would. And so I have a file in my archives that just says paywall. And it's all the times he said it because right. I thought it was funny that he's like, don't worry, we're behind a paywall. Well, and, it, you know, if they think paywalls are going to stop, then think about their texts and their telegrams, which showed up all over the place in Justice Department filings, uh, which will be used during their sedition trials. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you about I, my notes are not that heavy, but they're funny. The funniest one is I just wrote. Mupp I already texted you about this. It says Muppet McGinnis. McGinnis looked like a Muppet. I, that was like at the very beginning of the book. I, Andy Campbell, just for anyone, uh, I just, for everybody who listening, who's listening right now, Andy Campbell's a very funny writer. Um, so it's not too like slapstick goofy, but there's enough humor throughout to keep you reading, to keep you going through the book. It's not just like, here's a group and they're horrible people. Right. And, and, you know, I wanted to I wanted to sort of show the line where they are ridiculous. They have embarrassing rules that they follow, like the no masturbation rule. Yes. Um, they're they're You know, they are worthy of ridicule. But, you you know, at the same time, you got to go back and 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 show the threat that they pose despite that. But I think that's a lot of the GOP. There's 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 a lot of people to make fun of who also wield a whole hell of a lot of power. So this next section is definitely an inside baseball section, meaning I'm talking about things that your average person may not know about the Proud Boys. Very briefly, Gavin McInnes had a book that he said red-pilled him, and the name of that book is Death of the West by Pat Buchanan. And I explain in the clip why this book is so important to the Proud Boys. So I have a weird question. This is about the book by Pat Buchanan, Death of the West. Now, I don't have you read the whole book as I've read the whole book. I've, I have not read the whole book. I've read I've read excerpts, specifically the ones that the Proud Boys yes. tend to follow. But so uh, yeah. for, for some context, Gavin McInnes kept calling the death of the West basically his Bible. He'd say he would recommend everybody who came on a show. You got to read this book, Death of the West, Death of the West, Death of the West. And it was published over 20 years ago. Pat Buchanan is the author. And it is, in my humble opinion, straight up white supremacy. It's the Great Replacement before the Great Replacement was like a thing, which is basically Pat Buchanan is saying over and over and over again, we're not having enough white babies. We're not having enough white babies. We need mm -hmm. more white babies. And it's just this panic. So, yeah, I was just wondering, because I know that it got mentioned in your book a little bit, mm -hmm. just how, and this is just a general question, but like, how do you think somebody like Pat Buchanan was able to get away with being that blatant and nobody called him on it. Then again, it was over 20 years ago, but he just like slipped under the radar. He would still do appearances on CNN. He would still do as if he was like a normal, legitimate political pundit. I just find that really interesting. I don't know what he, your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, he is a, you know, a thought leader among far right conservatives, but he also appeals to a broader base without getting too explicit about um, the racism, the you know bigotry and the, the great replacement stuff. A conservative columnist um, in the early aughts uh, wrote that he is red meat uh, for white supremacists and racists um, because he you know is able to feed this 
to them without saying I'm racist, I'm white supremacist. And so it's, it, you know, it was called a good tactic by even conservatives. And certainly Gavin uh, McGinnis follows that rubric very well. And it's probably why, you know, a lot of his tenants follow Pat Buchanan's and, and, and a lot of uh, the way he speaks uh, uh, follows Pat Buchanan. And he reads Pat Buchanan out um, at the bar when the Proud Boys gather um, to drink and do coke, uh, yeah. so yeah. which is really wise to do at his age. Let me tell you, the cocaine is incredibly. It's really smart to do it when you're in your fifties. I'm being yeah. very sarcastic with that yeah. one. Yeah. If you yeah, want to die, mean, do cocaine in your fifties. Uh, the, the, yeah. amount of, the amount of heart attacks that are going to take down Proud Boys is off the charts, I believe. But you know, it's 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 the the plausible deniability factor of Pat Buchanan is is really embraced by so much of the GOP. I mean, the, you know, the Kanye stuff with his anti-Semitism. I think, you know, when when the GOP has other vectors than themselves to say the things that they believe, uh, they use them. And, and Kanye is a great example of that. But but Pat Buchanan showed them uh, how to do that. And that's why racists love him. Yeah, it's very I, I read the entire book because I felt like I had to because Gavin kept bringing it up. I had, and then I weirdly got two copies. I got used. I buy all my disgusting um, right-wing stuff used so the authors aren't getting the money. However, this Proud Boy book, I paid retail for. Thank you very much on Amazon. Oh, thanks, Juliet. <laughs> somebody, gets, <laughs> somebody gets a little sting. Fantastic. Okay, so, okay, so another question I have that I remember this one, and I'm so glad you brought it up. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but this one, I actually, just before I get to this next question, which is about Paula Ferris. So they'll give you a minute to think about it. But the thing that really, um, I'm so happy that it's finally in print is the origin of the name Proud Boys, because Gavin McInnes lied about that and nobody challenged him on it because they figured it wasn't a big deal. And the original, the version that Gavin tells everyone is that, um, his assistant loved musicals and he was trying to get his assistant laid. And so he created this group called the Proud Boys for his assistant, which sounds a little epic. Now, you know, the real version, because I sent you the clips right. of the real version and it's in the book. Why don't you tell my listeners what <laughs> the real version is? Yeah. And first of all, thank you so much for watching all of those hours of TV so that we didn't have to. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> I drive anybody it. insane. <laughs> but Gavin is, Gavin is on his show describing uh, his his children's music recital that he had to go see. And I say had because he was very pissed off to be there in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, his son and daughter had already played their instruments and a young uh, child with brown skin takes the stage. Gavin uh, says on his show that he's decided this kid is a fatherless Puerto Rican, maybe 12 years old, and he is incensed by what he's seeing, specifically because this kid decided to sing a musical. And that musical number uh, was from the Aladdin musical called Proud of Your Boy. Um, Gavin goes on a racist tirade against this kid, makes fun of him and his mom, uh, and then, you know, says, like, this is abhorrent, um, proud of your boy, becomes a sort of call-in joke um, for his first callers uh, where they say proud of your boy instead of, you know, uh, first time caller, long time listener, like other shows might say. And so through that joke uh, came a running gag 
And then, of course, the name eventually, when they put together the gang, shortens into Proud Boys. Um, but, but you know, I, I think the reason why Gavin wants to diffuse that story and put it on his assistant or whatever is because of the racism element. I mean, the Proud Boys were a product of him being racist toward a little kid. Yeah, and it's so evil because it's a child. Like, you're that upset about a child? You know? He's an evil guy. I mean, he, he, he uh, you know, he, he joked about that and he joked about raping his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, all of this, all of this stuff is a joke at the same time, you know, the difference between him and, you know, and Alex Jones or Howard Stern is that he formed a gang out of his audience. And so everything that he says, joking or not, tongue in cheek or not, is not just counterculture uh, shit. It is marching orders for a whole bunch of angry men well he also this is a a weird thing that i noticed um i tried to explain it to someone i said one one story he he told is he once missed his train from westchester to the city just missed it it's you know it's a like a transit train that would take you in like a like a a train to anybody who doesn't understand this it's like when you go from the suburbs into a, a city that kind of train like a commuter train he missed it and he was on the platform with a total stranger. And McGinnis got mad because the stranger wasn't angry. I mean, what is that? I mean, right. and he this wasn't a minor thing. He went off about this for like 20 minutes. He was like, that guy was just sitting there on the bench and he wasn't mad. And I was like, come on, grow a pair, you big loser. And he just like went off. And I just sat back going, are you okay? Like why he wants does... to to push his anger onto other people and he does it really, really well. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's it's also interesting because I have also described him. I have a another folder. I do this for humor. I do this for my own to keep my because I do it with Fox too. I have crazy folders that I'll probably never use. But I have a folder for um Gavin that was just called dumb. And it was dumb things he said, like the English language has 25 letters. The a population of Canada is 50 million. No, it's not. It's about 30 million. Like he would just say things. One one thing he said is he was talking about the Civil War and he said nearly all the casualties were Confederate. I'm like, actually, no. Well, and it's a good point that 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 most of the stuff he says is total bullshit. And, yes. and you know, including the masturbation thing, which they, you know, he and other uh, shock jocks <laughs> tout it as it's going to raise your testosterone, but it's based off of a study with a sample size of 10, 10. which found that testosterone <laughs> rose when you didn't masturbate. And of course, there are more serious studies that find the opposite is true. It's really bad uh, but, for your but, prostate too, apparently, to not well, masturbate. Well, well, but they, you know, they use it to uh, scare men about the feminization of, 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 you know, men. And, and it, they also use it to sell products. It's why you'll find uh, testosterone powder and tea supplements on every one of these guys' websites. Uh, no, I know it's, it's, what was the other thing? Oh, he, like, so what I was going to say about Gavin is that he's just a ball of charisma. Like, that's the thing that scares me is I, I would say this all the time because I would watch other people who are like quote unquote big names in the far right or people who just have like a big following and I'd watch their stuff and I'd be like they're not bright they're not coming up with anything new this is just machismo and charisma that's it that's all he's got and I think in some ways we're lucky that Gavin's a little bit too gross 
or he'd have a bigger audience like the butt plug incident right. that you mentioned in the book <laughs> there's an incident yeah. where gavin shoves a it's a butt plug i say you say dildo i say butt plug but this <laughs> same an instrument he shoves this like black latex thing up his own anus on camera what like and right. he's like and then he gets naked a lot and he would whip his penis out a lot he would flash his anus i saw all of this and i would go well in a way this is good because this kind of shrinks his audience because even his creepy followers are like enough and they would call right. in and they'd say stuff like this is really gay your show's getting really gay because they right. would talk about those exact incidents and he would still just you know but there's if anyone thinks that Mr. McGinnis, that would, it's so funny that I just called him Mr. McGinnis, is some sort of mastermind, he's not. It's just right. charisma. And Brian right. Well, and you know, I think he plans to bring that charisma to court later this year um, for en Enrique and the gang's sedition <laughs> trials. He's scheduled to be a character witness, which you know it sounds ridiculous, but you can expect that Gavin's going to show up and say uh you know first of all total lies about the gang but that they've cleaned up somehow since january 6th that he's helped them find their way again because he pretended to step down in 2018 and doesn't take any responsibility for everything that happened after but it's that that charisma that you have to worry about in court because unless prosecutors uh use some of your research juliet mm -hmm. um, they're gonna have a hard time combating that i, th I think a lot of people don't really see the threat so again, here's another section where I was getting way too inside baseball with Andy because we just know each other too well. We know this group too well. So 2018, a couple weeks before Halloween, the Proud Boys have this event at the Metropolitan Republican Club. After the event, uh, Gavin was supposed to reenact, during the event, Gavin was supposed to reenact a murder of a Japanese socialist. He thought that was going to be hilarious, whatever. After the event, he leaves and... The, a group, they were convicted for this, so I could say they did this. Um, a group of Proud Boys sees some counter-protesters, which they referred to as Antifa. They charge them and beat the crap out of them. Now, at the trial, the thing that did them in was the video evidence because it was very clear from multiple angles who started this and, and who instigated this fight. Uh, they were unarmed. Everybody was unarmed, but it was pretty brutal. The person who got the footage that basically did them in is a senior-aged photojournalist. She's absolutely brilliant. Her name is Sandy Backham. I'll spell it for you. S-A-N-D-I. That's her first name, Sandy. Last name is B-A-C-H-O-M. Follow her. She's brilliant. Um, and she, this woman in her 70s, is like chasing them with a, a camcorder. That's why it's such a great story. And I really wanted to give her a plug there. But right after this happened, now Gavin used to work with Vice, uh, Vice Media. He helped found Vice Media. In 2007, Vice Media and Gavin McInnes parted ways. And they have nothing to do with each other since. Trust me, there's not, there's no love on Gavin's end towards Vice and Vice's end towards Gavin. No love whatsoever. I don't want to pull Vice into this. I don't think that's fair at all. Vice has moved in a totally different direction and wants nothing to do with Gavin McInnes. But because of Gavin's past, Gavin still knew how to like pull favors. We don't know how he did it, but Gavin is a wealthy white man who lives in a posh suburb, and he was able to score somehow 
a very softball interview on ABC primetime right after this happened. And I will tell you now that all the researchers who worked extremism and all the reporters who worked this beat were absolutely livid over this. Some of the, uh, he had this uh, speech, this meeting kind of at the Metropolitan Republican Club in the Upper mm-hmm. East Side, which is an, this is kind of, there's another level of humor here because it was, it's one of the ritziest zip codes in the city. So like big, right. big, big time money. So he has this like meeting, he does a speech, he reenacts this uh, murder of a Japanese socialist and um, he thinks it's really clever. And then some of his Proud Boys got busted beating up some counter protesters and they were caught on camera. It's indisputable. Um, They ended up being convicted and got four years in prison. Right. And then right after this, Gavin McGinnis somehow manages to get this insanely stupid segment on abc it was like nightly news was it nightly news i think so and it Um, was with a woman named paula ferris and it was just complete softball so your thoughts on that yeah i mean so so paula ferris she's no longer a host with abc um but but she um you know goes into gavin's home for a an interview and 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 this in my book is is an example of what not to do when dealing with extremists as members of the media um just letting them take the reins of your show which is what she does she goes into his home puts soft lighting on him his wife is making sandwiches in the background and in fact he lets him and his gavin and his wife uh talk together about how gavin's not violent she supports what he's doing she allows him to deflect the entire time and i found out through a little bit of research um, after the fact that paula ferris the reporter who did that segment um, her kids go to the same school as gavin she lives right near him Um, and and so there is you know certainly evidence that they have a closer relationship than just you know a happenstance she did that uh, uh interview and so that was immediately concerning she claims uh, that the president of ABC wanted her to do it at the time. Either way, it's a really bad segment um, because, you know, this goes back to all media responsibility, which is that, you know, I have, you have, Juliet, hundreds of hours of evidence of Gavin being violent and and calling for violence. And this reporter is sitting there going, well, are you violent? Do you take responsibility for your violence? And it's like, you don't, if as a reporter, you don't have to ask questions and allow them to lie on your huge, huge network show when you have the evidence already. That is allowing somebody to take your story away from you and lie. Now, mm-hmm. whether or not she did this on purpose to sort of help McGinnis out, I can't confirm, but it certainly makes him look fantastic, even after his Proud Boys had been on, you know, two years, three years of violence uh, by that point. It it struck me, and I remember we were all very angry about that uh, interview. I think every researcher and journalist that was on that beat was just livid. And it struck me as the classic, like, rich, white, well-connected male being able to to weasel out of anything he possibly could get into. And it was enraging because I kept going, if he was Black, this, I don't think that he'd still be walking around. Like, you know, and he lives in he lives in Larchmont, New York, which is one of the richiest uh, neighborhoods out just outside of the city, um, alongside a whole bunch of media executives. So, you know that he's knocking on doors and he doesn't have support from everybody up there for sure. 
but but you know he's knocking on doors and trying to gather as much support as he can from the local community and it certainly seems like uh in this case he he found some yeah because even if he was like uh because i kept saying like this is this is just so enraging because had he been like let's say the proud boys was a black group and everyone in it was black and he lived in flatbush which is kind of a I used to live in Flatbush. That's why I instantly thought of it. And it's kind of a rougher area in um, Brooklyn that's now gentrified, but it wasn't when I lived there. And um, so he's like Jamaican. Okay. And he lives in Flatbush and he has a gang that he starts, but they're not violent and they just drink beer and they have a show on like YouTube, right? This is all plausible. And then they start getting in fights. No freaking way. There's no freaking (laughs) way. He'd be doing an ABC nightly news interview. And they would be like, oh, you poor thing. You're misunderstood. He, I was like, he wouldn't have been allowed to get off the ground. And Trump and company certainly wouldn't have supported them. Now, this next uh, section, I want to give a little context on again. This is about a group of people who I think meant well, uh, but gave money to the Proud Boys because they kind of misunderstood what the Proud Boys were all about. And I just want to preface that because I genuinely think that they thought they were doing the right thing. And then I have another, this one just, I just couldn't believe it. I read it and I went, wow, damn, damn, Campbell. Okay, <laughs> the Chinese donors. Right. That blew my mind. How did you find that? Well, I think uh, that's particularly, um, uh, that particular anecdote was a, I, I believe, a Will Carlos uh, article, um, a USA Today article anyway. And, and you know, they found, um, that, you know, I think it was like 80% of donations to several um, uh, specific give, send, goes for the Proud Boys um, were, you know, you know, members of the Chinese diaspora. And these guys were, you know, just regular people who wanted to, who saw the Proud Boys as the defenders from con- communism in communist China. And so, uh, the really striking thing from all that was was that you know this is everyday people, not mega donors, not big time politicians who were doing the majority of the donations uh, to these guys. And and man, after their crimes, after they get arrested, these guys are making hundreds of thousands of dollars on you know one or two give send go campaigns. They can raise funds quickly, and we all assumed, or at least I did that at least some of that was coming from mega donors. And man, it is it is hundreds or thousands of $10, $20 donations. That's just insane. And I will say this, I this is a weird piece of my history that I went to the Soviet Union when I was in high school in 1990 with an exchange group. We were, it was musical theater, musical theater exchange group. Um, and I was there for six weeks. I stayed in a pioneer camp and I lived in Soviet flats. And I kind of get why somebody who grew up under communism would be that terrified of it. Um, but of course the United States is like hyper-capitalist. We're nowhere near communist. It's just very strange that Chinese immigrants would view the proud boys as. Right. You know, it shows how good the proud boys have been at positioning the, the racism, the fighting, the violence as, um, something patriotic, something, uh, that we need because law enforcement and politicians aren't doing it. And, and so, you know, where a swath of Americans also believe that you can understand why 
the Chinese diaspora might might come in and say, well, uh, there's a whole bunch of people who support these guys. Trump named them on uh, on on the debate stage. You know, why why shouldn't we believe uh, that that these guys are out there fighting communism when that's what they say? And that's what half the country believes. Uh, the Proud Boys have done a really good job of obfuscating uh, the violence as something more political and more patriotic. I also wanted to ask you very quickly, because uh, this story is just so, it's still crazy. It was crazy when it broke. It's still crazy. The Jason Van Dyke, the mm-hmm. lawyer who may have killed someone, we don't still don't know. And uh, right. you called him the human manifestation of a hand grenade, which also... <laughs> caused me to buckle over laughing um and he like explain him i want to get a couple questions we were running out of time we got about 10 minutes but explain him as briefly as possible because i think he's such a great character even though i think he's a horrible horrible person right (laughs) but he's there jason lee van dyke is and not to be confused with the officer uh jason van dyke but jason lee van dyke was uh the proud boy's former lawyer he is super litigious he worked pro bono for the proud boys and he would just file paperwork against anybody who pissed him or the proud boys off he filed paperwork against uh me and talib Kweli uh at the same time because of internet comments or stories that i wrote um and and to me i have you know uh i have legal backing from huff post in my publisher but for regular bloggers it may not be as easy to fight back against that so he was a a sort of lethal weapon in that sense but he's also a total buffoon hyper violent i mean this guy is on facebook on twitter uh before he was banned threatening people's lives uh you know saying the n-word calling you know he threatened to kill a black family and hang them uh awful awful dude so the story in the in this book is 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 about him and Thomas Retzlaff, um, who was a guy who decided basically I'm just going to fuck with Jason Lee Van Dyke and I'm going to file uh, complaints against this Texas State Bar where he works over and over and over and over again uh, because I can and because I want to show them his violent rhetoric. Um, so they're in a years long spat. Jason Van Dyke gets caught in an FBI probe in 2018, uh, plotting to assassinate Thomas Retzlaff uh, by way of Proud Boys in Arizona. And that didn't work out. Jason wasn't charged because it was a different case. But fast forward to I'm writing my book and I'm like, well, I'll reach out to Thomas Retzlaff. You know, he's he's certainly been uh, reaching out for years uh, about Jason Van Dyke. I'd like to see what he has to say. And it turned out that Thomas Retzlaff uh, had been murdered, stabbed in the neck in the same apartment that Jason Van Dyke was scouting out. Now, there's no evidence yet that Jason Van Dyke is even a person of interest in that case uh, because the you know police department investigating it has gone completely silent. I'm not sure exactly what that means, um, but uh, you know it remains to be seen whether he's a suspect in that case. It's certainly, uh, you know, their their names are in the same same spot, and he tried to assassinate him prior. So. We shall see. And the quotes in your book are great about that, where he basically was like, Jason uh, Van Dyke is flat out saying, like, I'm going to kill you. If I will kill you, I will kill you. I will hunt you down and I will kill you. And then the guy ends up dead 
and murdered with stab wounds to his throat and the police are like i don't know <laughs> yeah like, what well yeah the, well I, you know the, the police are 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 being silent and i'm and i'm wondering and again i can't say that this is true but i'm wondering if that means that you know maybe federal agents are involved and and the, the case has been moved somewhere else or you know there may be other people that they're looking into i'm i'm just not sure but it, it is peculiar it's really nutty. And then finally, like uh, you kind of wrap up your book by saying like this group's not getting any better. They're getting worse in some ways. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And th- I get this question a lot and I never know mm-hmm. how to answer it. People say, well, what do you think like your average person should do? How can we fight back? Just a normal Joe who, you know, reads stories and might be a little bit curious. I want to just say too, get his book because it's really a very entertaining read I I'm in the book briefly, but that's not why I'm telling yeah. you to get the book. It is a very good book, but no, what would you tell like your average person who's like concerned about the rise of fascism in the United States? Well, look, I mean, the, the communities I spoke to that have been under siege by these guys want a full culture shift. And, and so, you know, we need auditing within law enforcement. We need law enforcement to look at their own ranks and say, who among you are proud boys or share the same ideology. Um, we need auditing um, in in the media. We need people to, you know, understand what is disinformation and what's not, because they have a whole media uh, uh, landscape behind them that's pushing forth this rhetoric and normalizing their violence. Um, and then, of course, it goes back to to voting. People need to, you know, be very hyper vigilant about their candidates, see who is extremist tied, and vote them out. But all of those three things taken together rely on people uh, talking to their local communities about it, talking, you know, demanding from your local law enforcement that they spend time and energy rooting out extremists within their ranks because they have a lot to do with their budget, but they rely on people to tell them. Same goes with voting, right? I think the last thing I would say uh, is is that we need to remove the stigmatization of of activism in this country. I think a lot of people are scared to join activists, whether it's researching online, putting together dossiers, or joining people at protests out in the street, because they're compared to Antifa, and people's idea of Antifa, which is wrong, is like this black-clad leftist holding a Molotov cocktail, which just isn't true. Um, that you know There are certainly militant leftists out there, but the majority of activism going on is local people going out there with signs, showing that you know they don't want the extremists in town, and as we saw, you know, this last week at Penn State, uh, when you activate, uh, it can work. Uh, you can drive the extremists yeah. out and show the community that you actually care. And so uh, join your local activists um, and vote the right way and, and pay attention to your community. I mean, if you if you see a, an officer or a politician on Facebook wearing a three percenter logo, mm. send it to one of us. <laughs> And then I have one like last question because we have two and a half minutes left. I'm watching that clock like a hawk. Um, really quickly, uh, basically, is there a part of you, because there's a huge part of me that just wants to scream, I told you so, because nobody took us seriously back in 2016 to 2018. Is it, I mean, I just constantly have that in me. Yeah, I mean, we've been screaming it from the hilltops since day one, you especially. And, and you know, the, the problem is, is that law enforcement and uh, politicians are just now finding out 
about the Proud Boys, about these extremists because of January 6th. Mm-hmm. An outgoing DHS official after January 6th told the Times, we thought they were just a fraternal drinking club. And so clearly we're just getting to the identification of this as a problem on mm-hmm. the national level. We need to move to a response mode now where we actually respond to the problem and stamp it out. Um, and, Correct. And we got a long way to go. Correct. Because I had um, the Alan... Oh, I'm going to forget his last name uh, from New York Times. I kind of got a little cheeky with him once on a tweet because mm-hmm. he was he posted something. And I said, yeah, I sent you tons of stuff and you ignored me. And he w- he actually called me and apologized. So nobody should ignore you, Juliet. I know. I, well, now I got like I, in the past, like two days, I've got like 3000 followers on new followers on Twitter. It blew up. I had two. That's because you kicked butt. Blew up. I'm just a maniac. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just like, I will work myself into the ground, damn it. Anyway, so yes, that is sort of the weirdo inside baseball. Two people who know a lot about the Proud Boys talking about the Proud Boys interview. I probably asked Andy questions that nobody else did because <laughs> I know it's just like I'm asking weird details instead of broad strokes. So anyway, you know, it's a good book. You should get it. Uh, I bought four copies, like I said. Anyway, I also want to say the name of the, um, I just looked it up, of the New York Times journalist is Alan Fuhr. It, I remember it because he had a German last name like myself and almost all of my family. Um, and he did call and he did apologize. Uh, I, you know, I can't imagine working at the New York Times. They get probably a bazillion leads and they just probably assume most of them are crazy. But I actually had it. Anyway, it's all good. Whatever. No worry. I don't care. So uh, that's about it. Thanks for listening. I'll have more podcasts for you coming soon. And if you want to help out with the this very micro-budget project, you can go to my Patreon for Decoding Fox News. Also, my cats, the podcast mascots, Odin and Thor, send their love. The name of the book again is We Are Proud Boys by Andy Campbell. See you at the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>